0: O U T D O O R and the number one. Lastly, many outdoorsmen are trying to quit tobacco altogether, and fully loaded chew may be that first step. For more information on our product line, visit fullyloadedchew.com. This is the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast brought to you by Vortex Optics. What's up, everybody? Welcome back. And uh, we got a good episode today from a very technical standpoint, and I'll tell you why. We have a guy named Bill Thompson on the show today. He is the owner and one of the founders of, or one of the owners and the founder of a company called Spartan Forge. And it, long story short, is it is an app that is going to be tested to predict deer movement based off of like years and years and years of deer movement data through collared um you know collared uh, deer movement collared collared deer that shows their uh, deer movement through gps and basically in this episode we're talking about how that data was gathered We talk about trends in data, we talk about weather, we talk about time of year, we talk about all these different things that may or may not influence deer movement. And uh, so what they've done is they've collected all this data, they've calculated all this data, then they've put a algorithm on top of this data or in with this data to identify these trends in hopes that they can predict and forecast deer movement. So you'll get a, a beep on your phone that says, hey, you might want to go out and hunt tonight. Or you might, you know, based off of this data, this historic data, you might want to get out and hunt tonight. So very interesting conversation, not only from a, uh, a technical software, I guess, uh, standpoint, but from a, a deer movement standpoint as well. When it comes to data and science, I'm kind of a nerd, so I love hearing about uh, trends in data and how data was collected and, and all that stuff. So um, you're gonna find it interesting because I think I found it, found it interesting as well. But uh, let's let's knock some uh, housekeeping out of the way real quick. If you if you're not subscribed to the Sportsman's Nation uh, RSS feed, the Whitetail feed, right? That's where this podcast is on, or the Nine Finger Chronicles uh, podcast as well. This this Nine Finger content comes in both of those places. So uh, subscribe to one of them at least, and then make sure you're following the Nine Finger Chronicles and the Sportsman's Nation on. Uh, Instagram and Facebook. Uh, Be sure, if if you have a friend that is interested in becoming a hunter and they don't even know where to start, myself and the National Deer Association recently launched a podcast series called How to Hunt Deer. Very simple. And the content is focused towards people who are brand new so if you like if you know who dan infold is and you know and we talk about uh, i recently just uh, recorded a podcast with him where we talk about deer strategy and we talk about all that stuff that's going to be next level this is the most basic information that a deer hunter needs to know before their first season starts with the most recent episode that we've launched is knowing the rules and regulations, something that everybody needs to know. So it might be a good refresher course from you, but for you guys, but it's going to be a little bit um, underwhelming from a certain standpoint. But what I want is for all of you guys who are already seasoned deer hunters to share it and let other people know that this content is available for them if they're interested. I'm sure we all have friends that might be on the fence about hunting or not. Share it with them. And uh, we, you know, just uh, another resource for us to grow our community. So that's why we did it. All right, commercial time. Wasp Archery. My favorite, uh, whether they pay me or not, like just one of my favorite brands. They've been around for a long time. A majority of their... Uh, heads are made in america they're made from the best possible material They're ferrule their blades are are tough right i talked to one of the engineers uh there fred Dockerty, and fred just keeps talking every time i talk to him he just keeps reiterating it's the material it's tough if it hits something it's not going to break right so we have A broadhead the very first thing that makes contact with the animal you're trying to kill and it does not fail right the goal is that for that broadhead is to kill and be tough and make its way through the animal and that's what wasp broadheads do man i've slayed a lot of deer with with wasp broadheads um so what i will say is go to their website wasparchery.com check out their fixed blades their mechanical blades i'm a huge fan of the uh, jackhammer mechanical and the boss four blade fixed blade those are my two favorites and they have a whole bunch of others that uh, you guys can pick from if you do decide to purchase enter the discount code nine fingers so that's the number nine the word fingers 2021. 2021. so nine fingers twenty twenty one you're going to save twenty percent off your purchase all right next where is it where's at? next uh vortex optics title sponsor again a company that is has great people working for it with a, a, an optic that is durable that you can beat the shit out of, right? But guess what? If you take it a little too far and it breaks, their VIP warranty will fix it for free and send it back to you. So if you break it, you send it to them, you fix it and they fix it and then they send it back no charge to you. Like they want lifelong customers. So when you're thinking about, hey, I need to upgrade or I need to get a spotting scope or a rifle scope, they want you to think of them, right? And uh, just the more time I spend with these guys talking to them and learning about the brand, the more, I guess, excited I am to work with them because they're not only the brand that wants to make money in the hunting space, but they want to educate their end users and they want to um you know they want to they want to be here forever they want returning customers but also they want to give back to the community through conservation through education and uh, they're definitely doing all of those things so check out vortexoptics.com spotting scopes rangefinders, binoculars red dots rifle scopes when it comes to optics they got you covered so uh VortexOptics.com and lastly HuntStand, brand new partner here and this is one that I'm, I'm playing around with and it just the more I play around with it the more functionality I'm unlocking and I'll tell you this it is a badass app and I, I'm probably late to the game here because everybody else who I've talked to has it, and I guess HuntStand is the number one hunting app in the country as far as digital mapping is concerned, and uh, being able to choose from, and I'm just gonna read some bullet points here, over a dozen base maps to choose from, property ownership information, 3D mapping capability, local weather information, uh, numerous m- uh, map objects, so being able to uh, you know, drop a little pin And say it's a trail camera or a buck bed or, you know, a rub or whatever, that kind of stuff. Um, The ability to track your sightings from the tree stand or blind and harvest logs, as well as scouting camera management software. So you can upload your trail camera pictures into the software as well. So that's uh, it's becoming. It's becoming fun to use, right? I, I find myself on it just kind of scrolling around, saying, "Okay, I, you know, I do my digital scouting on it, and then I verify everything through the the map objects, right? Um, when I when I do my boots on the ground scouting, and then I know where to go when when it's fall. So there's that. Uh, Hunt stand. If you want to find out more information, visit huntstand.com. They have basically everything you need to know about what that is. The functionality of that app does so huntstand.com and uh, that's it guys I really appreciate all of you taking time out of your day to uh, listen to this it means a lot to me so without further ado here is uh, our guest Bill Thompson three two one all right on the phone with me today Mr. Bill Thompson Bill how we doing man good how are you doing today Dan I'm doing good uh, I tell you what, I don't know where you're at But it is hot here in Iowa. I'm out in West Virginia,
1: and it's uh, we're about 85 right now, but we've been having thunderstorms all day, so it's
0: yeah. Imagine it'd be warmer if there wasn't. You guys been getting a lot of rain this summer so far, spring. Just
1: yeah, actually quite a bit, and it's been cooler than it's been most years too. So um, it's uh you know I'm originally from North Dakota, and they're not getting the rain out there that they want right now. So yeah. Um, hopefully, some of these places that actually need it for the agriculture will start getting it here pretty soon.
0: Yeah, that's funny. I was actually just looking at public land on um, on uh, uh, Google Maps last night uh, off, on North Dakota. I'm debating if I want to go there this year for a whitetail hunt. So I uh, public land whitetail hunt. So I was actually, uh, whereabouts in North Dakota are you from?
1: I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm from a town, well, there's a couple of places I live, but it's all in Pemina County, uh, Pemina and Walsh County up near the northeastern part of the state, Okay. north of Grand Forks, about an hour, hour and a half. I I graduated from Cavalier Public High School, which was a, a big football town up there, but uh, I haven't been back there. Gotcha. So I go back every year usually to, to haul beets or help out with that type of stuff, but um,
0: uh, yeah, that's where I'm from. Gotcha. So there's no mule deer in that part of the state?
1: No, not there. You need to get a few hours west in order to get into that. Um, but yeah, it's all it's the all whitetail where I'm at.
0: Gotcha. Okay. Good whitetail?
1: Great whitetail. Okay. I think uh, it's been, you know, it's, it's, it's the, a double-edged sword because it used to be kind of like the sleeper place that I would go that no one else really knew about. And people would always kind of look at me weird, weird when I'd say I was going back to whitetail hunt there. And I think it's just recently exploded in the last three or four years on popularity yeah, due to uh, you know guys going there and doing pretty well. I think it's kind of a, it's getting bigger.
0: Yeah. Well, I tell you what, man, I, uh, I love those plain States, right? Just hunting them is one thing. Driving through them is one thing. Like I just love that, that Kansas, Nebraska, South Dakota, North Dakota feel, man. There's just something about the plain States that I just, I don't know. I really dig. No, I'm a hundred percent with you. I love going back
1: there. I love driving through. the people are great um, the area is great. I mean, a lot of people don't like the cold. I get that, but the summer's there. can't be beat. I always try to go there. I'm going to be there this July 4 a.m. Uh, a buddy of mine who was a Navy SEAL, um, passed a few years ago. And, uh, we, we went to high school together and there's a golf tournament in July and it's just the best time to be there. Is You know, I think July and August yeah. outside of hunting, because you've got, you know, sun up at 5 a.m. Doesn't go down until 10 p.m. It'll be, you know, an 80-degree high, and it'll be uh, a 50-degree low at night, and
0: it's just, you know, just beautiful. Right. All right, so you, uh, you're you an owner of Spartan Forge, correct?
1: Yep, I'm a founder, and I guess the technical uh, term is CEO, but okay. I, I really just there's three of us that are founders but i guess i'm the managing guy i'm running
0: the show gotcha okay so for all of us who are i mean i've i've seen that you've been on a couple other podcasts i've read a little bit into what spartan forge is but um just kind of a high level not not too terribly detailed yet what is spartan forge
1: well i guess at it's base, we're we're a hunting company but we're also an artificial intelligence company i guess it's the simplest way to say it and um uh, the Spartan Forge is uh, we're, we're coming up with new and interesting ways to help the hunter out by um, all of this. You know, the term is artificial intelligence. It's really machine learning, but um putting, you know, otherwise incalculable amounts of data together to kind of draw a picture, a cohesive narrative for a hunter to make a more informed choice about when he or she might go to hunt. And then w- w- not only the when, but then the where they might go to hunt, I guess is the simplest way to say it.
0: Yeah. Okay. So, That's, that's a very high level because as someone who, I guess I've never used any type of artificial intelligence to help me make a decision on where to, uh, where to hunt, how to hunt, you know, based off of the elements and based off of terrain and all that stuff. There are, I have a lot of questions about a, how that information, you know, obviously there's computer mumbo jumbo and, uh, algorithms and stuff that are probably in your, you know, in your uh, coding or, you know, that help you make all those, help make the app what it is. But what I want to know is uh, when you say artificial intelligence, I, I assume there's a lot of research and data and, and things that go into this. So that's kind of what I want to talk about today is uh, the research, the data that goes into this artificial intelligence, making its uh, decision for you and uh thus pointing you in the, r- the right direction but before we get into that i want to talk about your uh, your background what is your background
1: uh so i'm a military officer right now i'm active duty i actually retire next month um, i've been in for 21 years uh the majority of my career was spent um doing um, signals intelligence and other intelligence disciplines and then uh the last 10 years or so has been focused on uh, development of capabilities for soldiers to use, whether it's uh, in, in, what we're calling SEMA now, which is really just si- on-net like cyber operations, or signals intelligence and human intelligence and other types that are used to help out um, wartime commanders, whether it's in a conventional unit or a special operations unit or a special forces unit. Um, that's that's basically been my job. So I, I've worked in all of those disciplines. Uh, you know, the regular green suit army to the special forces, to the special operations. We even have what are called special missions units. Um, I've worked either with or inside of all of those organizations. And uh, the, the last few years, I've been trying to uh, leverage things like artificial intelligence and big data platforms to bring more capability to bear for the people that go out and fight and win our nation's wars.
0: Gotcha. Okay. A little that, So there's your background. Now, when did this idea come into play where you're like, hey, man, um, you know, I think I, I have the capability here to create an app that's going to f- uh, forecast when a, a hunter should be in the woods.
1: So it, it was really like an amalgamation of things coming together, but I was developing similar types of products for the DOD that were basically taking in data sets that were too large for a human to do any type of analysis on. And then these data sets were being predicted on, we were, uh, we were identifying factors involved and in how data might move in a particular way. And I'm talking very abstractly right now, but the, the bottom line was there were certain things that we knew, there were things that we wanted to know, and the data set was far too large for any one person to try to pick through in any tri- type of traditional manner or use what we might call like a regression model or an expert model simply wasn't going to do it. So we started really diving into artificial intelligence and getting smart on that as an army. And as we started putting those things together and creating capability that actually was allowing us to get after bad guys, um, whether it's in IP space or in the internet, or it was, you know, physically on the ground during a kinetic operation, it started becoming apparent to me that a lot of, that this was a targeting problem that was being solved. And being a hunter, I'm always thinking about better ways to target. And so putting those things together, it became pretty evident that there was ways that I could leverage what's being done with academic data and kind of bring better results to bear for the hunter from a targeting perspective.
0: Yeah. Okay. All right. So now we have the, the background, the layout here all kind of in front of us. So when I go out into the woods Or when I make a decision on how I want to go about, let's say, oh, you know, I have time to hunt tonight. I look at wind direction. I look at time of year. I look at terrain features. I look at uh, food sources. I look at uh, potential bedding areas based off of, uh, you know, like post-seasons or preseason or in-season scouting, uh, trail camera pictures, um, historical information. Like, oh, I remember seeing a deer here. Uh, two years ago on this, these same exact type of conditions. How, uh, what are the contribute, the biggest contributing um, factors in the decision-making of this, this app? So from the
1: decision-making perspective of the application, the largest contributing factors would be Obviously it's our repository of data that we that we gather about the white-tailed deer. so there's a couple of places that we get data from. One of them is academics uh, that are doing collar GPS studies. so basically they're just throwing a collar GPS tag on a deer and it's following that it's with that deer for you know whether it's one or eight years we, ha- we kind of have the the you know many many different studies from all over the US where they're putting these co- these collars on and they're following the deer around and then what we do with that data, well, I'll, I'll get into that in a moment. I'll finish the different types. The second type of data is we have car collision data that we get from insurance organizations. And when we start talking about, you know, hundreds of thousands of accidents over a period of like 10 years, deer collision with cars and, 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 and those types of things, there starts to get bell curves when there are common dates and common areas where these things start to occur more often. They're oftentimes related to the rut. And then... or or seeking i shouldn't say the rut i should say the seeking and chasing phase of what we would consider the classic rut right from a biologist's perspective the rut starts when the the velvet peels but when the hunters use the term the rut we're talking about seeking and chasing really um uh, so that data and then academic academic data as it as it surrounds measuring of uh harvested does that have in euro fawns and relating to when, you know, the majority of um, breeding takes place across the U.S. And then other uh, non-traditional studies that are studying a variety of things where there are observ- there's observational data that's, that's, that is made empirical through, you know, the scientific method. All of that gets collected together, <clears throat> and then we also gather historical weather for about 30 years. We have vegetative data, and what I mean by that is aerial fo- footage, and then we're, we're actually starting to train models with things like LIDAR data and NVDI data, which um, indicate like crop health. And you can also get health of like trees or or mast or um, hard and soft mast, mast health. So all th- those types of data. And then lastly, topographic data. So, you know, how are the deer using the topographic setting to their advantage to create a situation where they're able to see maximally, but they're also able to smell from behind. And you know maybe they're catching thermals from the front. Or they've arranged themselves in some way that to, to maximize their ability to use their senses against anything that might be hunting them. So all of this stuff gets put together. And then we take all of this data and clean it and make it presentable for the machine so it's machine readable. And then we throw different types of algorithms at, at the data and different types of, this is, I'm talking very simply right now, but basically different ways to abstract patterns out of this data that are predictable. And we know they're predictable because we get new, new future sets of data. And we're basically trying to predict against that data when we think deer will be moving and wherever we think they'll be moving. And then we can use the physical data to do those tests. So all of that gets put together and that, those are the contributing factors. And, And the way that that's done is through this, these neural networks, which are like mesh networks that are modeled after the human brain. And that's why it's called neural, uh, they're called neural networks. So all of that gets put together and and those are the factors and the contributing pieces that, that help educate our model. So they're, they're very robust. We're talking millions and millions of data points from all over the U S
0: and, uh, it makes for a pretty comprehensive prediction. Okay. So I can understand that on a large scale with all the data, you can find trends, right? But that's, that's based off the law of averages. How does that then boil down to Dan Johnson in Iowa, in my County on my farm that I have access to?
1: Sure. So, well, the first thing is, is that we have data from in and around Iowa. So those deer herds that are, that are regionally close to you, they've, they've evolved in similar ways or they've been stocked from the same parts of the country or as deer herds were introduced to different areas of the US uh, evolutionarily they brought they brought core instinctual patterns that they that they evolved as the white-tailed species to to where they have certain things that indicate to them that it's time to feed you know something like fat content in their body and and I'm not a biologist I should just say that from the beginning but you know I've read enough of the science and I looked at enough of the data that you know and i work with enough biologists right now that <clears throat> you get a pretty good sense of what's kind of driving movement but as far as how it translates for you is there there's these pockets of movement and these pockets of training and training data that we get that educate the models regionally the data is if there's one thing the data the white tail gps data is evident about is that the same things do not get deer moving in the same ways across the u.s in other words what What gets a uh, a buck on his feet early in the day in North Dakota for an afternoon feed is not what's going to get a deer on his feet early in the day in Texas or Oklahoma or, you know, the northeast part of the United States or the southeast part. It's all different. And it's all based on on basically, you know, a few things, but especially up where near you are, it would be favorable feeding days, the amount of body fat that the deer is carrying, proximity to the rut, all of those things – factor whether or not a buck's going to make a decision to risk his neck to go out and feed because that's essentially what they're doing is they're exposing themselves to get to places where the sunlight can hit the ground or where acorn acorns are falling or where crops are being grown and generally those are places where predators have a field of view on them so they're only going to go there they when they when they need to and the, and a lot of the times especially early season it's gathering fat for the rut or it's gathering fat before a storm or it's or it's accumulating fat because there's a storm coming. There's, there's many different factors that go into it. And again, I'm not a biologist, so I don't know those. But I do, I do know that there are patterns in the data. Gotcha. In other words, we see generally that deer will start moving as it responds to certain weather events. But it's not, it's not always the same. You can have two exact – two a point of contact would be you could have two exact same weather events. In other words, days where the weather is generally the same what's going to impact whether or not that deer is going to be on his feet is how many favorable feeding days did he had before that date. In other words, does he need to get off of his belly and risk his neck because he doesn't have the fat stores that he might otherwise need to make it through a storm. I'm not saying that's exactly what it is, but it seems to be part of what gets a vote in the data. And, and those types of things seem to affect deer movement less to the South and the Southeast.
0: Okay. So as you're calculating all this and as you're running your tests, um, has there been any type of uh, like aha moment in this data where the, the artificial intelligence is uh, finding a trend that may be um, outside of what the hunting industry or hunting community has always known or has always uh, recommended like, Hey man, uh, you should really hunt on a cold front
1: yeah, so there's a ton of these things. and the, the so with artificial intelligence, it's kind of a double-edged sword. Um, in the in the first place, the the data gets ran through millions of times. And there's millions of different permutations on how we look at data. So it's very difficult for us to pinpoint when a pattern is found exactly what is being found in the pattern. All the machine knows is that it's reliable and repeatable. so it's calling it a pattern. But oftentimes we don't. We're not able to nail down exactly what's causing it because it works a lot like the human brain, as I said. So you know, you you can think of it this way: you have two people in a room, and your body is trying to thermal regulate temperature. So if the temperature drops in the room quickly, maybe one person gets goosebumps, but the other person doesn't. You're you're not. You know, a scientist can't look into the brain and understand the wiring. At least currently, we can't to understand why one person maybe is getting the goosebumps and is conserving heat or starting to shiver or they're starting to do involuntary actions that would thermoregulate that person's body, whereas another person's not. It's the same thing with these neural networks. All we know is, is that they're successful because we, we see new sets of data that it predicts, predicts very well against, but we're not able to exactly nail down why. But what we do know is there's efficacy there and that it, it tra- it's trained well and that it's predicting well And I can only make guesses about these things. But, you know, I guess a common point of contact that I talk about a lot, especially in the south – well, in the north, I'll do it for the south and the north because there's some interesting ones in the south, I think, that are just interesting to think about. And then there's ones in the north that maybe people know or maybe people talk about, but it's not a hard and fast rule. So I'll start with the south and saying things like humidity and rain seem to get much more of a vote than you – read in your traditional hunting magazines or in some of these other um, online forums where, especially in places like Alabama, South Carolina, North Carolina, if I lived there and there was a light to mid to light rain happening, I would certainly be in the woods hunting. Like that really seems to get the deer on their feet. And <clears throat> again, you can kind of make guesses about why that happens, but you, you can cook up a couple of different scenarios. Like one scenario might be hunters don't hunt during the rain. So the deer there have been conditioned to move during periods of rain because they're not encountering predators. Or you could say um, the way you know they're they're hairy animals. So when it starts to rain, maybe it cools them off during a period, and they're not they're not um, they're not risking raising of their body temperature like they normally would. So when it's usually like 95 and muggy, well now it's raining, so they can go move a lot and, and get a lot of fat on their body, and they're not risking exhaustion. Um, maybe it's a mix of those things. We don't know, but what we do know is when the rain starts to fall, as long as it's not like a torrential downpour, that really seems to get deer moving. And then there are other places in the South where things like humidity does the same thing. And again, we can only make guesses about that. I um, you know, one guess or one thing that I, I kind of think about is that it could be indicative, the humidity shifts could be indicative of a hard rain and the hard rain could be indicative of flooding. Flooding seems to really drive movement down there. And it also drives how deer are selecting bedding and where does are um, bedding during the day. And also, it even seems to affect, and I've read that, you know, the peer-reviewed scientific literature is pretty clear that it even can affect when does are dropping fawns based on, or when they're going into heat in order to drop fawns because they don't want to drop them during a a flooding season. I want to say that is particularly, that occurs a lot in places like Louisiana, where the does just don't drop fawns during the flooding season. So they'll rut like super late in the year or super early in the year, even a county apart, there'll be two months or three months difference in the peak breeding dates because of there's you know particular amounts of flooding at one elevation and there's not at another elevation. So there's not that risk. so that that's when it becomes particularly important to have all of that peer-reviewed scientific data on like peak rut rut dates, which the application has. We've got the peak rut date for every county in the u s. And there's quite a bit of disparity even when you have, like I said, two counties apart. But then to go back to kind of the north and maybe for your listeners up there, I'm sure you have listeners from all over, but even for up in the north where you are, um, certainly the amount of favorable feeding days leading up to a storm really has an impact. So someone will say something like, you know, the temperature is dropping and the pressure is raising, so I'm going to hunt So that can be accurate sometimes if that gets deer moving, but when that really gets deer moving is when it's the third or fourth time it's done that in the last 10 days. In other words, the deer have been experiencing a lot of stormy weather, and the data is pretty clear, especially among the wily, older, mature animals, both does and bucks, a lot of harsh weather events, they'll simply try to sit out on their stomach. Now, once it happens to be maybe in a 10-day period, and that's not an exact number, but maybe it's the second or third day where we're really getting some nasty weather. <clears throat> now you might get a spike in movement because the deer have said, okay, fat stores are getting low, we simply have to get out and feed now, or we're gonna freeze to death. Or we need to move to thermoregulate. And if we don't do it, we'll freeze to death. I'm not saying they're making those decisions. I'm just saying from an evolutionary perspective, their instincts are probably forcing them to do it because they're monitoring those fat stores just like a human monitors how they thermoregulate. You know, the 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 shivering mechanism that we have is not controllable. You can't control whether or not you shiver. That's your, you know, that's the that's the the unconscious part of your brain telling you to start moving because you need to generate body heat. It's the same thing with a deer. They, they they're not. It's not as if they're making the decision. It's just happening because they know that they need to add some fat to their body because the weather could be getting worse. So there's, it's never just like a, it's never cut and dry like anything in life. There are too many variables coming into play, which is why i have particular belief in the efficacy of using something like an artificial intelligence because it can notice those trends and it can extrapolate all of that data and then have some you know they can it can ameliorate all of that data or or make it better i should say and come up with a better answer on okay just because the temperature is going low and the and the pressure is rising doesn't mean they'll necessarily be feeding this day but maybe the third time in the month it's telling you to so how a hunter can use that is all right, the prediction, even though I see a weather event's coming, the prediction is saying they're going to be mostly core area for the day. So our, so our predictive system is basically saying the deer during daylight hunting hours are going to be staying in their core areas. But now the third time that those same, set of, those same sets of conditions come up, now it's saying high movement. So I'll get a lot of emails about this. They'll be like, people will say, well, you know, I had the exact same weather on Monday and it said low movement. Then I had that exact same and then I had a warm weather Tuesday and there was low movement and I had the exact same thing on Wednesday and it just said, you know, and I say low, I mean core movement. And then it said, you know, transition movement on Wednesday. But then again, it's even a little warmer, but now Friday it's saying full range. Like how can that be? Because it's the warmest of those three days, but it just happens to have a storm on Saturday. And the answer is always a it's a neural network, but B it's noticing that, you know, the deer has probably tried sitting out on its stomach long enough and it's, cal- it's back calculating how many favorable feeding days it has. And at some level, it's probably making a guess about how much the general deer has from a fat percentage on its body. So now it's saying, okay, it can no longer set out these storms. They need to feed. The general deer will be feeding this Friday. So it's one of those things where there are so many data sources. there's so many permutations of the data. There are so many things that go into it. It becomes really difficult for us to nail down what exactly is going on. All we know is, is that as we get new data, it predicts right now we're at about 65% accuracy on predicting the proper amount of movement for a day. So from a movement perspective, it predicts that core movement, transition area movement, which could be defined as movement between bedding and destination feeding or, uh, or signposting or sexual displays like scraping or rubbing um, or signposting. And then full range, which would mean, you know, you're driving to work one day. I always define it this way. You're driving to work one day and you always drive by the same field and there are never deer in it. But then you drive by it at 2 p.m. one day and there's, you know, 30 or 40 deer in that field. Like what is going on to get all of those deer moving? Um, that's a full range day. So as as with the model – so what I can do is I have access to live collared GPS data from a couple of places in the U.S. So at any time I can look up first what my model's predicting – and then I can go to the caller GPS data. So what I'll do is I'll, I'll literally just print screen it and I'll look at the next week for my, what my prediction system is saying. And then I'll wait till that Friday or Sunday when I want to look at the data. Then I'll look at what the actual days of heightened movement were. And then I'll compare the two things and I'll compare the amounts of movement that was predicted versus what actually happened. And we, we range from, um, depending on where the data is being in the U.S., between 61 and 70% of the time are very accurate and it usually averages out about 65%. And then we have another metric that we call pattern, which is basically can be thought of if you know how deer enter a particular field and you know how they leave a particular field while they're feeding, that would be their normalized pattern. In other words, they come in from the you know, they bet on this knob, they come in from the east and they leave to the west. That's a normalized pattern. But then you know you go to hunt that pattern one day, and they all show up from the south, and they're all out in the field at 3 p.m. And you're like, "Well, what's going on?" So that would be a full range day that's got a very irregular pattern. So those are the those are the two axes that currently right now the outfitter are the application that we've developed predict across.
0: Okay, so how do how do you test this? Because the uh, the algorithm could say, "Hey, there's a you know." We got a high deer movement today. We, you know, expect high high deer movement or uh, whatever the term was that you used. Um, yeah, full range, full range day coming up. Um, so I'm like, okay, I'm gonna go get into my into my stand. How did you guys test that for accuracy? Uh, and I guess, yeah what's the what's the test for accuracy? Because accuracy, in my opinion. Um, would be something very hard to calculate uh, as far as the law of averages is concerned.
1: Yeah. So, so what, how we define high movement or what I call full range movement to the system is again, when we're using the aerial data, GPS data and we're using, or the aerial imagery data and we're using the topography data is these deer are entering areas that are traditional feeding areas. So for, for, I'd say something like 80% of the data, we know where the deer are going to feed and we know where the deer are bedding. So we are teaching the network those things. And then the network is making notices of when the deer are heading to destination feeding areas earlier than they normally would, or when they are staying in their bedding areas later than they normally would. And then it's waiting until that pattern has repeated itself many times. And then Once it's repeated itself many times, now that system has a good idea of when the deer leave for an afternoon scenario, when they leave early to head to feeding areas and and when they're staying on those feeding areas longer into the morning and then heading back to their bedding later than they normally would. So that would be a full-range day. So you can think about it this way. If a buck generally leaves his bedding area, let's say it's December, if he generally leaves his bedding area at 5.15 p.m., and the sun is down at 5.30 p.m., every time that buck is generally leaving earlier than 5.15, so it comes out at 5.03, it comes out at 5.07, it comes out at 4.50, the system is taking note of everything that happened before that day from a weather perspective. It's looking at how the deer travels and all the intricacies surrounding that, and then it's making note of all of that pattern, and then it looks for that pattern in, in future movement, and then it trains the neural network. And then what happens is, is that it devises a rule, these rules, these patterned rules that it has. And then we wait for more, we either wait for more GPS data on those deer, or if we get data near that area, then we look to see if that pattern, in other words, the weather events that are driving movements there, are the same weather events that are driving movements there in other areas where we're getting the data. And then once it's doing that, then we know that we've got a pattern that the deer, a rule you could think of it as, that the deer in that area are abiding by as it relates to when they are leaving bedding earlier to feed in the afternoon. And then we're also looking at physically just measuring how, from a line distance, how much movement is taking place in a time period. So uh, during that day, from a second um, perspective, The machine measures physically how much ground is being covered by those animals, and then it's looking at the weather conditions that are surrounding days where they're moving two or three times more than they normally would, and it's taking note of that data. And then as long as it can predict and see that data in the future, now it's got a rule
0: or a heuristic for that area. Does that make sense? So it sounds to me like a lot of this is weighted or or, or based off of collared deer movement.
1: Yes, almost entirely. It's, um, it's trained with collared deer data movement. Okay. The, the other data repositories that I talked about either feed our peak breeding dates or our seeking and chasing dates that are reporting heightened periods of movement as it re- revolves around things like photo period and, uh, and peak breeding. Okay. And, and that's what feeds the dates that we have across the U.S. So if, as you go to the outfitter right now, if you were to type in like a zip code or an area – it would tell you the historical weather for the last couple of weeks. It would give you a prediction on the movement and pattern for the next week or so. I think it's week right now, maybe 10 days. I mean, we may have upgraded it to 10 days, but then it's also telling you the peak breeding data for that area. So it's telling you, Hey, this is generally when the majority of deer are in their first estrus at, in your area. And then you can kind
0: of plan your hunting, uh, uh around that. Okay. So, with with all that said, then, um, there, I, I'm assuming that there's not just collared deer running around all you know, giving you all these millions of data points throughout the entire country, right? It's it's very selective based off of uh, what I'm assuming is projects run by the Department of Natural Resources in in a specific state.
1: Yeah, so we get data, we get GPS data from departments of natural resources. We get them from universities, but we also get them from hunting clubs. A surprising amount of hunting clubs allow academics to come on and tag their deer data, and then they give them that deer data so that the hunting clubs have an idea of how the deer use their areas, but, and then the scientists are getting, the academics are getting, you know, whatever they're trying to study that year, whether it's fawn recruitment rates or it's go-to-buck ratios or predator mediation or you know, chronic wasting diseases or hemorrhagic disease, whatever they're studying, they get from that data. So there's actually a pretty good, right now I would say we're only missing a few key states in data. We're continuing to add data every day. And what we find is, of course, deer aren't aware of geopolitical boundaries, but as long as you have similar environmental conditions from a climate standpoint, there doesn't seem to be a lot of disparity in the data as it relates to creating these patterns and predictions based on it. So that's to say, if I get three or four GPS studies out of a state, I'm generally able to make a pretty good model about that that will predict on future data sets that I get out of that state unless the unless the temperature or the climate is you know incredibly different as it can range across the state. So you can think of something like a Maryland situation <clears throat> my for, I've got Chesapeake, Maryland data that's along the eastern shore, and I've also got data that's from Southwestern Pennsylvania that's right near the Allegheny and it's right near um, uh, The panhandle of Maryland Certainly the data that I get from the Allegheny of Pennsylvania and the panhandle data that I get from Maryland couples much more closely um, Than the data couples with what I'm getting from the Chesapeake along the shore Uh, That that shore data seems to closely correlate with other shore data that I get from North Carolina and South Carolina but it almost holds nothing in common with data that I get from the mountains. So <clears throat> from a geopolitical standpoint, those boundaries mean little or nothing. It's more about the proximity to the other data
0: that I'm getting. Okay. Um, and then how does how does terrain work in with all this or lack of cover or, you know, we have a, a prairie state like uh, South Dakota, which has almost in certain parts of it, almost no trees uh, and th- for example, the, the white tails are limited to river bottoms and they don't go up into the hills and, and things like that. Uh, um, and Iowa, you know, this farm ag mix with these uh, timbered fingers and drainages. And then we have, um, you know, some of these Appalachian states where there is no ag, it's all big woods and it's all hilly mountainous type terrain. Right. Yeah. So
1: that for us, and are you talking from a when, like predicting, the best days to hunt or are you talking from where, as in now you're talking about the networks looking for places to hunt?
0: No, I'm talking about uh, when still, because I I would, I would assume that terrain and you know, one, one thing I just really can't get over is how does this system that you've created know when uh, like food sources like you can look at an aerial map i can i can look at an aerial map and i i can't tell if those are acorns if the acorns are dropping what the forage uh, on the understudy or you know the the ground level um underbrush is in, in that woods i don't know if there's uh, ag in certain fields, you know, the, the digital imagery could be multiple years old. Now it's, it's not corn anymore. It's CRP. Like how does it take all of that into consideration as well?
1: Yeah. So that's actually interesting. And that's a problem that we're getting into right now. So I will tell you that traditionally, uh, the model doesn't do super well when it comes to those really flat areas that, that lack a ton of topo and lack a ton of, aerial imagery data, but what we're doing now is we're starting to train our models with what's using NVDI data, which is like a measure. Uh, It's a remote sensing measure in agriculture that basically shows, it's kind of convoluted, but it's capturing infrared light that is reflected to show the crop health of what's below. So then what the model can do is, if we get NVDI data from a certain time series, and then we have, we have GPS data from that same time series, we can look at where the, the deer are moving towards more often or less often based on the health of the agriculture or the mass that's in the area. Um, and that NVDI data is really helpful, especially to differentiate things like bare soil or grass that doesn't have any kind of you know nutritional value to it, or healthy parts of the forest, so unhealthy parts of the forest. Um, so that we're, it's getting really good at helping our model in that way. So that's kind of one point of contact, but it's, it's difficult to get the amounts of data that we need that correlates with time series data from an NVDI perspective. So I'm, it's getting convoluted right now, but basically there's a layer. You can think of it as imagery, even though it's not imagery, but there's a layer of this NVDI data that tells us how healthy certain pockets of forests are and certain pockets of agriculture are. And then when we throw the GPS data on there, uh, it starts to bear out that the deer will go to these areas where plants are growing. There's more lush plants growing or the, the acorn crops are better obviously because they want more food per you know square foot. So <clears throat> those are things that we're getting, that we're going to, or we're, we're doing right now to educate our models, but they're not part of our models right now. So, it's quite a good question because we certainly see that as one of the places where there's room for growth, whereas it's a lot easier to train these models in places where it's obvious why they're going there, whether it's because there's a feeder station that an academic has set up or there's a soybean field that we've been told is there in the data. And now the model knows why they're going there. But yeah, so that's actually one of the ways that we're trying to make this model even more dangerous and even more accurate is being able to pick out these things. So yeah. I guess my answer to that question is we recognize we have room for improvement there and we are going after it pretty, uh, no, we're going after it. We're getting after that.
0: How many uh, data points are you collecting throughout, uh, throughout the country? I mean, as far as the number of collared deer that you bring in on a, I mean, is this continuous? Is this something that there's data coming in on a daily basis?
1: Yeah. Yep. So we, we do get data in weekly. We have a couple of data, sources where there are deer right now in the field that are wearing collars and we're getting data we can get data from them right now um i generally wait till sundays to go out and collect that data but we're also getting data from studies that have been done in the past and have since stopped but we're into the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of deer you know closing in on a thousand years of deer data yeah and what I, and what i mean by that is, is if a, if a buck wears a collar for three years that's three years of deer data yeah so if I have a herd of bucks, for instance, uh, let's, I have a Texas study where there was quite a bit of bucks that were collared and just to make the numbers easy, if there were eight bucks that were collared for three years, now we have 24 years of deer data. If that makes sense.
0: Yeah. Okay. So at what point then, cause now I'm starting to think from, uh, the business standpoint, and I need, in order for my business to be successful, I need the, I need as much data from across the nation as humanly possible so I can sell more of my product. At what point does Spartan Forge then start putting its own collars or working with the Department of Natural Resources to collar more deer, uh, not only to, to share the information with... Uh, whoever you know the the Department of Natural Resources, but to help out your company as well, because the more data points that come in on a weekly basis, the more accurate the uh, the the forecasting is, thus making it more desirable for the end user. So yeah, that's a,
1: great, that's a great question. So we are working with academics right now. I've never actually asked them if they want us to mention who they are, but I can tell you that there's a few right now. That we're going into next year and funding their studies, and one, you know, the, what we're always trying to do is get them better GPS callers that give us more readings per hour. Um, generally, you know, a good study, we're getting some of our best studies, we're getting readings every 15 minutes. And then some of our worst studies, we're getting readings every about four hours. So what we're trying to do is, hey, you know, if we get you a caller with a great battery on it, can we get you know f- every five minutes for a year or two years or something like that? So. We are actually starting to fund those right now. And obviously as we bring in more revenue, that's going to be one of the things that we try to do is help more academics find out what they need in their state. Cause it's kind of, it's a situation where it's good for everyone yeah. because the, the academics get to learn more about their deer population and they don't have to go out and get money from places um, that they don't want to, or, or, or is not as interested in the science as someone like, like our group is. And, and then we in turn can take that data and make better models for hunters And what we're doing is from every, in any way you cut it, we're helping people be better stewards of the deer population because we're understanding more about the population. We understand more about the population's dynamics. We understand more about the fawn recruitment, as I mentioned before, Um, what, you know, a a balanced herd looks like. And then we're we're helping fund academics so that they can inform hunters, so that hunters are better in the field. And and then we're also doing that from our side with the app.
0: Gotcha. So... Can you provide any examples of throughout your testing, throughout people, you know, not only you and your your crew testing it, but as you start to release it out into the general public, um, like, can you share some examples of, uh, like, hit, like, big hits where, oh, dude, all of a sudden there's a huge cold front that comes across North America from, you know, Minnesota to Louisiana and across the whole eastern side of the state and... Your your I don't know your, your algorithm clicks tells all these people to get out in the woods and they all kill deer that night.
1: Yeah, so I, I've got a few of those stories, but I think the stories that are even more interesting to me are and and we both know Garrett Prawl, correct?
0: Yep, he's on the network.
1: Yeah, yep. So Garrett um, has a great story he shared on one of his podcasts where his wife and him were hunting this last year, and they had a, I remember he had called me. On like a Thursday or a Friday and said that him and his wife were heading out that weekend because Saturday just had you know consistently he he really is is really into the data on this and um, he had figured this I believe it was a Saturday it could have been a weekday but I'm 95% sure it was a Saturday where he had said I'm sure this is gonna be the day of the year we're gonna get into our like they had like the stand location I think the two of them were maybe a hundred yards apart or something like that and he said no question this is going to be the best movement for day for the year and um i immediately asked him what the outfitter was predicting and he said low core movement <laughs> so i said uh that's not good that worries me right because i've got a guy here who is an expert and you know garrett he is an expert um saying you know this is probably gonna be the best day for the year and him and his wife went and got into their best stands and they were, I think he said 100 or 200 yards apart or something like that. And neither of them saw a deer that day. And this was during the rut. So I want to say this was five or six days before peak breeding. And neither of them saw a deer all day. And that was the only, I believe that was the only core prediction for the week. And then later, I, I'm sure you saw the buck that he killed. Yeah. The only, the only, um, I believe it was that Sunday, was the first. Or maybe it was the Saturday after. I can't remember. Anyway, the next day that was coming up where it was not going to be core movement was just like a transition area movement day. Which basically means the deer can be found in between bedding and food sources or in between, you know, basically. I always think of it as you should be hunting scrapes or rubs or areas in between bedding on a transition day. Because that's kind of where they're going to be concerning the majority of their daylight activity. And I believe that's what it was. The day he killed his buck, and they killed that buck over a scrape at like 2:30 or 2:45 p.m. or something like that. So, like to me, that kind of had both ends of the spectrum. And saying, "This is," you know, to me, it's even more important that the uh, that the that the neural network tells me when I shouldn't be hunting. So I'm either not wasting a good stand, or I'm not wasting a vacation day, right? Because that's really what I'm trying to optimize for hunters. Is <clears throat> every, you know I, I come from a working class family. And days off are few and far between. Yeah. So I'm with 60 or 70% accuracy telling – and that's an important point, actually, I should hit, is in, in, in machine computing and in neural networks, we have what's called recall. And recall, basically, you can think of it as, yeah, it's, it's important to know when it's going to rain, but it's even more important to know when it's not going to rain. So a prediction system that can tell you when it's not going to rain has really good recall. And our system has really good recall. In other words – yeah, it can tell you when deer are going to be moving, but it's even better at telling you when the deer aren't going to be moving. And so because that, that number exists on a continuum, as you could imagine. So that model was telling him and his wife like that day they should not be wasting either a day of vacation or their best stands because they're gonna intrinsically they're leaving human scent behind. So if that's a day that someone could use that to go and work and you know create some more income for their family, or they're not burning their number one rut stand because there's not going to be movement, and the only movement in that day might be after dark. Then that to me is a win for the system because um, we're optimizing people's time of field. And as I look through the marketing and I look through the the studies on the outdoor space, it almost consistently it comes back with people. You know, the average hunter is trying is spending about twenty five hundred to three thousand bucks a year on deer hunting. The average white tailed deer hunter. Yeah. Um, what they're not what, they, what, what that so money for them is not the issue, you know, for some people it is, obviously, but really the issue is, you know, I got to spend time away from mama, or if mama wants to go hunting, she's got to spend time away from dad or someone's watching the kids or whatever. So they're trying to minimize the amount of time that they're spending a field that's not going to be productive. And that's really kind of where we exist is in that working class space for hunters that really want to optimize when they should be in the field and when they shouldn't be in the field. Um, the final point of contact though, on that would be is if you have a property where the deer don't bed on your property, like for my, for my, my own purposes, there's a golf course, a very small golf course that I get access to. It's only a few acres, the deer bed across the road. So I only hunt that place during full range days. In other words, the deer are going to be hitting destination food spots, which I, I have, um, uh, this golf course they feed on, they, they feed on the golf course. It's basically where they go to feed. So I know that's destination food for them. So I don't hunt that golf course unless it's a full range day, because if I get in there on a core area day, a, I'm not going to see beer deer, the overwhelming majority of time. I'm not seeing deer, but B when I'm leaving, they're smelling me when they come through there. Yeah. So now I'm educating them. So let's just like a couple of ways that, that I think it can become very useful for people to have this as like a metric,
0: um, on when they should or shouldn't be hunting. Do you guys take into consideration or any data from moon phase?
1: So moon is programmed in, um, and, and it it is a part of the weight, but it doesn't have, it doesn't seem to have the amount of bearing, at least that I thought it would. It does seem to get bearing in certain places and it does not seem to in other places. Um, and it's, to me, it's one of those things where I think the jury's out. I think there's still room for moon to have plenty of impact. Um, it could swing either way. And I think it's one of those questions that's going to get answered when we have more data. I I do think at this point that if the moon does have an effect, it's not from like a gravitational pull effect or from a waves perspective or, you know, any of those things that moon influences, I think it might have something to do with the luminance of the moon and the ability for deer to feed at night. But I I don't know. I don't have enough data um, to say whether or not, I can't make, I can't draw a conclusion on that at this time.
0: Yeah. Um, Cause I'm sure you're aware that there are studies out there that uh, moon phase uh, based off of some of these other studies, moon phase uh, did not increase or decrease. I think it was just like a normal, it just continued on its normal trend. As far as deer movement is concerned, it didn't, it didn't decrease it and it did not increase it.
1: Yeah. I've seen studies that say uh, are on both ends of the spectrum. I've seen studies where it says that it does increase it, and I've seen studies where it doesn't increase it. There's a study out of Auburn by a guy named Ditchkov where they find deer move more, but they're staying in their core areas. In other words, the moon seems to be affecting them. Now, there's correlation here. It's not causation, of course. Yeah. So we have to separate those two things. But they're moving more, but they're moving more in their core areas. In other words, it seems to be getting them on their feet or it's – my thought is my, you know, I'm not a biologist again, but my thought is, is that they're just, they're in these areas where they're bedded or they're at feeding spots and they're just moving more because they're more comfortable because there's more illuminance. Whereas if you have that full moon and it's a cloudy night and there's that illuminance isn't there, uh, then they're not moving as much. But again, I'm not sure. I've seen just as the science seems to indicate, I've seen studies where it indicates it. I've seen science where it says it doesn't indicate it. Um, that's kind of where I'm at right now. I just simply don't have enough
0: data. Yeah. So man, there's there, it just, it sounds complicated, right? I mean, everything we've talked about, it, it sounds complicated, which is the reason for the app, right? To simplify all of that, that processing into a red light, green light type scenario, right? Precisely. Yeah. So what are some things like? I I kind of asked the question uh, earlier, but I mean, through the, through the AI do, let me see, how, how, how do I want to ask this? Um, Everybody talks about hunting on a cold front, right? Does, does that statement match with what, um, uh, what your artificial intelligence is telling you?
1: so currently right now it seems like that is a good thing to do about a third of the time so as i look i can actually you know compile all of the data and i can look through it and it seems like with the and now again this could change once i get more data but right now it seems to be if you had a cold front coming and you had a three-sided die and the three-sided die said yes no and no on it that you're essentially rolling that dice every time you see that cold front. Then you should just do what the dice says. Now, the network has more to it, so the network's going to be more accurate than that dice roll is. But it seems like you're correct about a third of the time if you do it that way, if you play that game. Now, that's north of the Mason-Dixon. When you get south of the Mason-Dixon or you get into areas where cold fronts are not are, very, are much more rare, they almost always sit them out.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I, I would assume that time of year has a lot to do with that as well. Yep. Because, Precisely. yeah, because one thing that I've noticed and, you know, you hear everybody, you know, all the content providers, podcasting, um, a lot of the old, older, uh, print writers are like, Oh, you got to get up on a hunt on a cold front. You got to get up on a cold front and hunt. Um, like early in uh, early in any season it just to me i've seen it just doesn't make sense because you know a first week of october cold front the deer are still probably going to move on on a nocturnal i I haven't seen it influence as much as i had you know i have in you know uh, the later time of the of october as we're getting into that quote-unquote pre-rut stage so
1: That, that makes total sense to me yeah based on what what I've seen so as well
0: so then the odds for that that statement or the so like October 1st let's just say that three-sided dice would say yes no no but based off of the information uh, that the algorithm is pulling from in October uh, let's say 28th it could be yes yes no
1: yeah and especially yeah and especially where you're at um and and, it, and I'm guessing you're targeting mature bucks that, that is a really good time of the year up there. It's yeah. like the last week of October, especially when you're talking about mature deer. Um, there seems to be something across the set of mature deer where they will engage in this excursory excursion type of behavior where they're looking for the first hot dough. Yeah. Especially if, if they're, if you have a traditional like November 5th to November 15th breeding window, Yeah, that that buck is looking for that first hot dough. So if you're targeting a big old buck, that's and you've got a cold front,
0: you've probably got a couple of things aligned and working in your favor. Yeah. All right. So the other the other thing that I want to talk briefly about is what you just mentioned, uh, age class, uh, sex and and uh, do do I tell the system then, hey, I want to I want to shoot a doe because I can go to a, a couple of tree stands on my farm and I can sit and I can have a group of does come out every single night within shooting light in, on, on a couple of these places. But buck activity is a different story, right? I may, I may not see a, a buck. I may, I may see a buck, but that has really nothing to do with the age class of the buck. So how, how does the system differentiate sex and maturity?
1: So it it certainly does have that calculated in there. And we're actually trying to, to or we are programming a mature animal model. So we're going to separate it out because it seems to me, especially with bucks, certainly with bucks, between the ages of three and a half and four and a half years, there's a type of mental maturity that takes place that makes them much more difficult to hunt. Yeah. And they seem to have learned kind of what their core area is and, and where they feel safe and 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 the patterns that have gotten them that far in that their life and they're actually kind of in that type of I guess mental rut and that's where they I shouldn't use the word rut they're kind of in that mental place where that that's how they when they move and that's how they're going to act and that's where they're going to be so there's certainly a separation there to go to your to your question about and I guess to put a to put a bow on that we are going to be the the data is evident that there is differences But then there's also where the the mature deer do move more, but they just stay in their core areas while they do it. Whereas a a two-and-a-half-year-old buck, all things equal, you have a storm front coming and say it's your third or fourth storm front in an area where you are. So generally the system is going to be predicting more deer movement. The effect on that two-and-a-half-year-old buck might be out in the middle of that cornfield at 2 p.m., whereas the five-and-a-half or six-and-a-half-year-old buck is moving more, but he's just staying in his area that he's used to. So he's foraging more. He's looking for more food. He's changing more beds. So that system can still help you in letting you know that the buck that you're targeting, if it is mature on a full range day may cover more of his core area. And that's all you can hope to get out of that animal. So it's like another way to use the model because the deer seem to still be moving more. They're just not taking the risk that the rest of the deer are taking when they're being, when they're getting that imperative to go feed, so. But then the second part of your question there, which was about, um, or maybe it was the first part, but it was about stand selection as it relates to seeing does or seeing bucks. The system doesn't really get into that right now, as it says. You know, bucks will be moving more, does will be moving more. We certainly want to move towards a system that does that. But right now, we don't have the volume of data that would allow us to see if there are any differences between how and where they move. But, but generally, with the system in its state right now, all you uh, the only thing you can tell yourself is generally deer will be moving more or less than they than they normally would. Um, the wear of that um, is is actually part of a future feature in the system.
0: Okay. So, how confident? Are you in this system uh, knowing what, um, let, me, let me see, knowing what you know about how artificial intelligence works, the amount of data that is being brought in on a weekly or monthly basis, um, and, and your plans, how confident are you in this, um, this app that it, like, it's going to be very efficient? within a month or a year or two years or whatever.
1: I mean, I'm very confident. So the same types of artificial intelligence systems that we're using right now, um, and the same types of algorithms and the way that we do data smoothing and, and the way that we clean and house and process and analyze the data is the same technology that is putting drones in the air and cars driving themselves on the road. And, and those cars and those drones have much better track records than humans do. Yeah. Um, When you talk about comparing a Tesla and a Tesla's crash rates versus a human, you're you're talking about a system, you're, you're educating a system on how to negotiate train in space. Yeah. And then, and then what you're doing, what I'm taking is going a step farther and I'm saying, okay, what are the circumstances under when this, this general type of animal will negotiate train in space more than it otherwise would. So, you know, the efficacy is there and the, and the science is clear that artificial intelligence is kind of how we're going to be doing things smarter and faster in the future. But, you know, I always kind of temper that with... In, in artificial intelligence, there's there's a term that we call general intelligence, and general intelligence is basically saying the general intelligence is what we have as humans. In other words, we can look at any type of situation, problem, we break it down to its constituent elements, we look for patterns in data, just like a machine does, and then we come up with a hypothesis, and then we test the hypothesis. If we're correct, then we have a new way that we, we operate in the world. Artificial intelligence systems are nowhere near that. It, I think we're 50 or 60 years away from an artificial intelligence that's going to be able to do anything like what a human does yeah. when it comes to breaking these things down. But when you define the parameters, whether that's a road or that's a deer, and it's whether it's feeding more or feeding less or it's recognizing a picture of a cat versus a dog, when you bound the system and you use that neural structure, it's becoming very, very accurate. Yeah. Um, so I'm very confident in the system and its abilities. And, and it's something that I can demonstrate empirically um, you know, from the scientific perspective, because more and more as I get new data that I've never seen, the system's getting more and more accurate. In other words, if I get new data from Ohio, I've never say I've never gotten data from Ohio, But I have data from southern Minnesota, from eastern Iowa, and from, you know, uh, uh, western West Virginia, right? So I've kind of got the area surrounded. As I get more and more of this data, and I'm getting states, new new states of data that I've never had before, the system is still consistently staying north of 60%. In fact, it hasn't been south of 60% in almost a year. So... It's getting very good at understanding generally
0: what a deer is willing to do and what a deer is willing not to do. Okay. So, a lot of my listeners, you know, will say, man, that's pretty cool. I might need to get this, right? You know, I got to work a lot. I, you know, I got to pick the best times. I have a family, whatever. Then there's the other half that are going to say, this is bullshit. Um, The only way (laughs) to accurately. Um, learn when deer are moving is to go out and hunt and use your woodman's woodsmanship right and then you just gain this knowledge over years and it you know the the more knowledge and experience you have just like your algo algorithm makes me uh, choose the best possible hunting days okay so yep. what yep. what does your what is your comments to those people
1: well i mean i guess my first comments would be you know, it, it, they, if they want to use the system and, you know, have some fun farting around with it and seeing, picking way at it and seeing if it works to just see they should do that. But if they don't want to, they shouldn't. Um, this thing is about time optimization, like I said before. And it's about, um, you know, it's also about hunter retention for me because, uh, you know, I am a public land hunter like yourself. And I've been in the military for 21 years. I only have access to public land. Um, And if I do get access to private, it's very few and far between. And I'm trying to optimize my my vacation days. And and as we get people, you know, the hunter numbers are going down. And if we, you know, not everyone has a mentor and not everyone has five years to learn woodsmanship. So if we can get some new hunters in with an application that's going to just increase the odds a little bit to their favor and help them out. Maybe they don't have a, you know, a Dan Johnson that they can call up. And ask questions to and where should I put my stand or what sets should I make or how close should I get to betting and those types of things but they have an app that's distilling this information and there's lots of other things that the application does as well from weather analysis to there's all kinds of features you know once the season gets going and we release this thing I'll be happy to come back on and explain and, and, yeah. and kind of run yeah. people through once they have a visual representation but basically You know, this is no, I always equate this with, you know, having a Dan Johnson as a friend, like you've killed a lot of deer. Um, Anybody who is privileged to be your friend can call you up on the phone and ask you what you think about a certain type of situation. There are people who don't have that access to you or a Garrett Prawl out there that haven't embodied the knowledge and don't have the corpus of knowledge or the access to a person like you that has embodied it or has the corpus of knowledge so they can't just call someone and 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 learn things and, and make it quicker. They can watch YouTube videos. They can do all of these things. But really what I'm trying to do with this system is get new hunters interested in hunting to kind of demystify the deer woods and get more people out and in turn voting and making decisions for legislating that allows more access to public lands and gets more young people hunting and continues the sport into the future because – if we kind of do take the the latter and not the former approach where everyone just needs to go out and learn it on its own, we're going to lose interest and we're going to continue to lose interest. Some people might see that as good, but I don't because yeah. the more interest there is, the more land there is and the more this sport that I love grows. Yeah. So for me, it's all about time optimization. This currently, you know, this app's not going to say, dear, we'll be here. It's going to say generally deer will be moving or generally it's less. It's still on you to have the woodsmanship, to stay still in the woods, to stay off the phone while you're in the woods, to pay attention to your surroundings, to pick the right tree, to make sure you have the right cover, to make sure you've shot your bow consistently. All of those other features are there. It's just if you don't have a Dan or a grandfather that's been hunting the land for 30 years, that can tell you all of that stuff. Now you can just kind of look to the phone to get some of that heads up information to make a more informed decision. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, very interesting now can you promise me uh, promise us that we're not going to have a skynet situation
1: <laughs> yes i can promise you that As I, said before, <laughs> I still think we are I, I honestly believe the more and more i get into this the more and more i do this work i think we're 60 50 60 years from anything that will resemble <laughs> general intelligence and and i just say that because of all of the work that it takes and all of the data Just to get something that notices more deer moving more or less, you know, it's been for me a seven year effort. Yeah. Um, So if we want to start talking about something that's going to reason like a human, it's just there's way too much we don't know about our own brains, let alone programming a brain. Yeah. um, As it relates to consciousness and subconsciousness and even that skin situation that I talked about before. We have no idea why some people are really cold. And, you know, for me, I keep the house at, if I could keep the thermostat in the house at 58, I would. Of course I'm a cheapskate, so I keep it at seventy. But <laughs> you know, if I could keep it as cold as possible in here I would. Whereas my girlfriend, she would keep it at seventy five in here all the time. Yeah. You know? Yep. Everyone's different for all of these reasons and we just don't have any idea why. Yeah. Um and it's the same thing with these networks. We're, I think we're a long, long ways away both from an information perspective and from a computational perspective. Just the ability for the machines to yeah. you know, embody and, and, and do what a human brain can do is just to me
0: beyond. Um, I don't know if we'll ever get there, yeah. but we'll see. Well, um, very interesting uh, conversation today. If people want to find out more about Spartan Forge, uh, where should we send them?
1: So our website is Spartanforge.ai AI. Um, we have an application that's coming out in the app store here. Um, we're testing it right now. Uh, it's going to be available, you know, uh, early August, I would say, is when we're going to make it available to the general public. Going to be a lot of interesting stuff on there. I'll be happy to come on and talk about more another time. And um, uh, yeah, SpartanForge.ai AI as an in artificial intelligence.
0: And they can also find us on Instagram under Spartan Forge. And uh, yeah,
1: that, that's that, and we're on Facebook as well.
0: Yeah. So uh, this probably should have been one of the first questions that I asked you, but we're going to end with it here today. Uh, what does the name Spartan Forge mean?
1: So, um, as I said, I'm in the military and, you know, I'm an officer now, I've been an officer for about 12 years, a warrant officer, which is you can think of as like a technician. And perennially, no matter what commander I work for, we're always doing studies about great um, military um, regimes, whether it's, you know, the Greeks and the Spartans in this case, or Patton's Third Army, or, you know, Schwarzkopf in in the Gulf War. And we're always trying to distill what are the the common constituent elements of these first great leaders and then the militaries that they're made up of, that they've made up and trained and made. And for me, the Spartans um, were always kind of one of those forces that dominated and through their discipline and the way that they train the soldiers and the way that they organize their society, albeit a little rough um still was highly successful especially when you look at some of the great battles that they participated in so um and in the military that that subculture is very present so for me spartans for spartan forge is just you know where those elite types of soldiers go to get their tools and in this case for
0: the hunter it's you know we're making tools for the hunter so um that's kind of where the name comes from All right. Well, Hey, I really appreciate you, Bill, uh, coming on and, uh, chatting with us today. So, uh, thanks again for your time. Yeah. And thanks for having me. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, another episode in the books, huge shout out to hunt stand to Vortex Optics to Wasp to Ozonix to Lone Wolf to Exodus man please go out and support the companies that support this podcast because uh, you know they're doing they're doing great things and uh, they're not like I love working with these brands right they all they all are doing something special to, within the hunting community and the hunting industry and uh, the fun- on top of that the functionality allows me to be a more efficient deer hunter so take that uh, how you want it uh, other than that, I couldn't do any of this without you guys, so thank you. Be sure you're subscribed to the Nine Finger Chronicles and the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network on iTunes or wherever you download the podcast. Uh, check out the How to Hunt Deer podcast, and we have some new ones. The Wisconsin uh, Wisconsin Sportsman, the Pennsylvania Woodsman, the Ohio is not new, but we have an Ohio-based podcast podcast. Uh, Uh, Michigan, uh, Michigan Life Outdoors, like all this great state-specific content coming through the network now as well. So take a look at that. Good vibes in, good vibes out, and we'll talk to you next time.